Welcome to The God Solution, a place where we discuss solid evidence for the Christian faith and interviews with leading Christian apologists. Each week, you'll be encouraged in your faith and equipped to defend it and share it in your daily life. You can find out more about The God Solution at GodSolutionShow.com. Well, welcome to The God Solution, where we discuss answers to humanity's questions about God and God's answers for humanity's questions. I'm Grant Persett, sitting in for Nate Herbst today, and I'll be talking with Jay Warner Wallace about his new book, Forensic Faith. How are you, Jim? Doing good. Thanks so much for having me on the show. I appreciate it. Absolutely. You know, I'm looking through the endorsements of your book. You've got Dr. Gary Habermas. You've got Dr. Keener. You've got, I mean, there's pages of endorsements here. I mean, this is pretty incredible. I'm really glad that we can get you on for this book. And I know that one of the things you said about this book and have written is that you now feel that you are making a case for making the case. So yeah, it's almost I, like a step back. What what made right. you what made you feel that way that you had to make a case to even make the case? Well, I would occasionally, you know, tra- I mean, I travel a lot now, and I'm speaking at uh, churches, and we're making the case based on the first two books, which were Cold Case Christianity and God's Crime Scene. So people will have you come and either talk about what the evidence is related to the reliability of Scripture, or they'll want you to come and talk about the evidence in the universe that points to the existence of God, and that's great, and I love doing that. Uh, oftentimes, though, if I'm honest with you, I didn't put this in the book, but it's been my experience that uh, sometimes when you're asked to come and do that, you're asked by a layperson in the church uh, or by maybe an elder or a deacon in the church. I'm not always asked by the pastor of the church. Mm. And when I get there, I can see pretty quickly that the first person I have to convince of the value of making the case for these issues might even be the lead pastor who's kind of, you know, is reluctantly giving in to the desires of a persistent elder who has been, you know, pushing away and pushing away. And, and finally, you know, they say, okay, I'm great. You know, let's get this guy in if you think he's so great. And, And so I think at times I felt like we have to make a case for why we ought to be making a case before anyone's going to you know, even be interested in the case for God's existence or the case for the reliability of Scripture. So that's, that's been kind of one of those things that I thought, you know, we, we almost need a book or an argument or a case that could be made for why we should take a more evidential view, a more evidential approach uh, to what we believe as Christians. Well, and I I run into that problem, too, at work. I work with um, some PhDs and a lot of uh, scientific-minded guys, and they'll say, oh, there there is no evidence. It's all just faith. And so I run into that all the time, which is why I'm glad to steal your information. Well, and this is another good reason to even define the word faith, right, for people, because Mm -hmm. we have have folks who— and Dawkins has made a great play out of this in his writing, Richard Dawkins, the famed atheist, when he'll argue that, you know, faith is the great cop-out, mm. that the, the need to evade evidence, or even uh, uh, really a belief in spite of evidence. Mm. This is seen by him as the definition of what real faith is. Well, of course, he, he, po- he, po- he pitches that out there because it sounds so ridiculous, right, to his readers, and it sounds so counterintuitive. Um, um, how you know, or it just sounds like it. It, it kind of backs us into a, a, a theological corner, in which we we appear to be people who believe in things for which we have no supporting evidence. Right. He's even said that, uh, and that are really unreasonable, like the flying spaghetti monster. Right. right. And, and so this is this is so it really comes down to a definition of what it is to have faith. 
And is there a Christian definition? This is part of what why I titled the book entitled the book Forensic Faith is trying to kind of help people see that the Christian definition has never really been to believe it in spite of evidence to the contrary. That would be unreasonable, and it's not been to believe it even though there's no evidence that could ever be examined to persuade you in one direction or the other. That would be a blind faith. It's believe it because it's the most reasonable inference from evidence, even though, of course, there are going to be many open questions that you're going to hold, right, right. which is true in every criminal case. And we're asking people to make a decision in spite of the fact that I can't answer every question for you. And I, I actually ask jurors in advance of selecting them, are you the kind of person that has to have an, an answer for every question? And if they say, yeah, I think I'm that kind of person, we'll simply say you're excused uh. because we can't impanel a juror that could, that needs every answer, you know, every question answered because we, we just aren't going to be able to do that. No, you can't. So no. it's important for us to kind of define the terms here, and that's what I wanted to be able to do, and then show the kind of rich, robust um, history of Christianity that has always been uh, based on the eyewitness testimony of those who saw Jesus, and that's called direct evidence, and it's an evidentially based worldview from the very beginning. Absolutely, and that's why I appreciated you have extra-biblical evidence, but in forensic faith you also have Bible verses so that you can show it, or I can show it to my Christian friends and pastors, and it shows that, yeah, Jesus and the disciples used evidence. So, no, I'm, I'm all for that, and so I kind of want to move on to this great idea. I've heard you mention it before. You fleshed it out in the book a little bit, and it's the difference between training and teaching. And I, I want to say I've already started putting in this into action in my own life and see the difference. Can you explain what you mean by that? Yeah, I used to. I stumbled on it because I was a youth pastor who was struggling to kind of. I uh, get his youth group, my youth group, to to um, turn corners for me because I I felt like I wasn't equipping them well enough. I I saw repeatedly that that um, uh, some of my graduating seniors, you know, would uh, would not survive uh, in in college. Uh, many of them left the faith in the first year or so of their college experience, and a lot of us as youth pastors, we don't even. We don't even really know what the what happens to our graduating seniors. You know, sometimes mm -hmm. unless you've got a younger sibling who's still part of your youth ministry, or uh, they still have friends in the youth ministry, they may move away. Um, at least here in California, to a, to a university that's several hours away, and never you know you never have any contact with that right. student again. Now, on social media, we can still kind of hang out and see what's going on. But I suspect if most youth pastors would track their graduating seniors beyond their youth ministry, they'd discover that they've got a problem, oh, wow. and we've got a retention problem uh, once they leave our ministry. And I think that most people who are listening to this could probably think of somebody in their own life who, during those years following high school, stepped away from the church and maybe never even returned. And, and this is what I, I said, what am I going to do here? We were, we're teaching every week, and we're teaching the stuff that we think is important. And we even st stopped at one point, you know, everything that was kind of the fun, experiential stuff that we do in youth group, you know, the games and the pizza that draws people to to a ministry, we we said we we gotta get focused here. We we but even after doing that, I noticed we weren't having the kind of impact we wanted to have. Even though we made an intentional effort to teach theology, to teach um, philosophy, to teach the evidence, we needed to, we were doing something wrong, and and it was all because we were teaching, but we weren't training. And so I, I said, we're going to stop teaching. We're just going to stop. And I'll, I'll typically pitch it that way when people ask me, hey, what do you need to do to make a big difference? And uh, stop teaching. Stop 
teaching. We've been teaching for years. Clearly, it's not helping. The, the attrition rate continues to climb. In spite of good teachers working hard in the church, we've got to start training, and there's a difference. And so I try to develop a model, a five-step model in this, called TRAIN, T-R-A-I-N, that, uh, and I've written about it in places over the last several years. I've certainly talked about it in talks I've done, but I wanted a place where I could really make the case for this this distinction. And I thought I was in a, really my own experience as a first responder helped me to see the importance of of training. Right. And and this is why I decided, okay, I'm going to make an effort here to um, to articulate it in the book. No, that's fantastic, and I, I've used it already because I have—I um, know you have uh, Mormon family members, and I've yep. had Mormon missionaries come over just a couple days ago, and Jehovah Witnesses have come over regularly as I, I talk to them. They actually stop by every Saturday because I'm willing to talk and just ask questions. That's awesome. And um, my daughter came It was two days—I think it was—yeah, it was just last weekend, and as wow. they came to the door, you know, my daughter, 17 years old, she just came and listened. She just came yeah. and listened. And um, I have certain things that I that I say to Mormons about the evidence for the Bible compared to the lack of evidence for the Book of Mormon. And, you know, and I, I just ask them, if you can provide me some evidence for the Book of Mormon, I'm willing to consider. You know, I mean, I'm if you can prove me wrong, I'm completely willing to to think about your way. Right. Well, see, what you just did there was a good example of this. We talk about, first of all, I always say you start with the test. Mm. You've got to test yourself to see where you're at. If, and, and once you know how poorly you, you fare in a particular area, you're far more likely to say, I'm uncomfortable with that, and, and I want to make, do better. So I suspect if, if, if I, as a test, I said, hey, let's just go to a visitor center at the local Mormon uh, ward or temple and, and uh, hop inside and ask a few questions. If you didn't know anything about Mormonism, that first first day in which you're talking and dialoguing with the, the Mormon uh, missionaries that are working in those facilities, you would find that they actually know a lot about the Bible. They know a lot about what you believe, and you don't know as much about what they believe. And you would find yourself, if you were to engage them in 30-minute conversation, you would see your need. You would see right away, you know what, oh, I'm bad at this. These guys are owning me. They're just, they're just uh, <laughs> they, I mean, I can't make any headway because it makes, they make their worldview sound much more reasonable than I'm able to make my worldview. And it seems like everything I I say they've got a response for it. Mm. Well, that's a good test. Uh, and if you've ever done that, you'll see that, wow, I have a need. We will often role play with students before we start uh, teaching because it, it, it shows them their need. You say, well, how do I get kids to be interested? Spank them uh, in one of these role playing. Uh, <laughs> get in front of people, put them in a place where they realize how poorly they fare. And they don't want to feel that way anymore. And they, they want to know that there are answers, and they realize that I don't have them. And once they realize that, then they're willing to pay attention. And so the role-playing sessions we'll do are quite animated. And at the end of it, I don't think there's a student in that room who wouldn't like to know how to answer the objections I just raised as I'm role-playing as an atheist professor or I'm role-playing as a, a Mormon missionary or a Mormon bishop. Whatever it is, you, whatever you, however you want to learn, whatever area you want to learn in, invite somebody in who holds that worldview and see how well you're even able in love to interact with them while still getting to the most key issues that divide you. And you'll see that for the most part, we're not ready. If you've ever been out to street evangelizing, that first night you're out evangelizing, sometimes you feel like, I'm not prepared to do this very well. And if you don't want to feel that way again, now you're going to start paying attention. And then, right. of course, the next thing we do is we, we raise the bar and we start to, to give kids. When you treat students 
in high school, like they're capable of learning at the college level, they only respect you more for that. Oh. They, they love that you, you, you love that you think enough of them to challenge them at a level that nobody else has challenged them at. And so we want to raise that theological bar, raise that philosophical bar, raise that evidential bar. And the next thing, of course, you've got to do is you've you got to, um, uh, you know, the TR is raise the bar. A is you've got to arm them with something. You've got to provide them with not only the Christian worldview substantiated by the evidence that, that supports the Christian worldview, but I also want to arm them with all the arguments of the opposition. Right. And I want them to hear them for the first time in the setting of their youth pastorate or of their home with their parents. I don't want the first time that somebody encounters a really a substantive objection to be when they're, you know, eight hours from me in a university classroom sitting next to a cute student or a handsome student who uh, also holds a secular worldview. I mean, this is something I don't want. That's not the first place you want them to hear these objections. So I'm going to make sure they hear them in my setting. Now, the I is though probably the formative, that's the one thing that I think that most um, dramatically changes teaching to training, and that is you have to involve people in the challenge. It's done with your calendar. When you ask those Mormon missionaries to come over to your house, that you presented on the calendar of your week, the challenge that you have to get ready for. And you may not know enough about Mormonism before you ask them to come over to your house, but if you know they're coming over on Wednesday, you're going to start boning up on this before they get there. Right. And it's that calendared challenge that animates and brings to life those teaching opportunities. So it's no longer wah, 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 wah. It's, it's actually, I've got to get ready right. because they're going to be here next week. And I think in the end, we get all uh, that little example of you just set, and by the way, your 17-year-old is sitting there watching you do that, uh, is a great way of modeling the, te- the training ma- paradigm because you've, you've now placed on your calendar the thing. And that's like fighters, once they, you know, they get fat in between fights, but when they schedule the fight, if it's 12 weeks out, they are about to begin a 12-week training program. They're going to drop 30 pounds. They're going to be in the best toning and conditioning of their life on the eve of the fight. Absolutely. And that's what we want to do. We want to, we want to train for a challenge. And it can be very – look, it might just be that you've got somebody you work with or somebody who's in your family, and you've got a holiday coming, a birthday party. I know I had this in my own life. My dad is not a believer, and I often um, will think about, you know, I'm getting to that point. He's getting older. Like, I, I, I need to put on my calendar that we've had this conversation a thousand different ways, but on this date, I need to re, kind of navigate the, the conversation again. Mm. Or there's somebody else you love that you, you want to share this with. It could be very simple like that. It could be something that you're going to see this person, but now I'm going to be very intentional about my interactions with my friends and family members. I'm actually going to put it on a calendar, and I'm going to use the next five weeks before this time to prepare myself for that, to prepare my heart for that so I'm not going to be too abrasive. I don't want to be argumentative. I don't want to be uh, arrogant. I want to have the right heart and disposition, but I also want to be familiar with what their objections have been in the past, and I want to be ready to answer those objections. I even want to try to kind of guess where they might go and prepare in that direction. So do you see how you can actually make something the challenge that maybe in the past you didn't think it was and prepare for the challenge by training up to it? Absolutely. And the last N in the train model is that you have to be able to nurture and have a good mentor. If, if you don't have a mentor in this, sometimes a mentor can just be somebody online that, that you read a lot or you listen to the podcast a lot uh, and that you can go back to to, to make sure. Because in the end, 
these don't always go well. Challenges don't always go well. And you're going to need somebody to help you navigate both the successes and the failures. And right. we do this in youth group. We want to make sure that we're there to nurture our young people as they go through this training model and they have these engagements with people on the backside. We want to be there to correct a little bit if we have to, to, to kind of um, to, to be compassionate for those times that maybe they need some compassion or empathy. But that nurturing part is so critical because it's grounded in relationships. So that's the model I try to advance. And I think if we, as a youth group model, embrace this, you will see that um, young people be far better equipped, if nothing else, to hold on to the truth in settings in the next five years when they leave us that are challenging. Right, right. We don't want them to be shocked out there. Let them be shocked That's at home right. and walk them through. Well, if you're just tuning in, you're listening to The God Solution. I'm talking to Jay Warner Wallace, um, who is really—I I look at this book, Forensic Faith, as a call to action. I mean, I saw a lot of— um, I don't know, motivating paragraphs that challenged me to study my Bible as much as I study, you know, what I had to in college that I didn't even want to be, want to study. And there was a, a part, I wish I wrote it down, but I remember reading it and it said, you know, is your child worth studying? You were talking about the idea that they don't just need a book. And I'm about to ask you for, for good resources for the youth, but they don't just need a book. They need the parent. They need the youth worker to come beside them and show them, you know, just like you would a soccer coach or any other sport, you know, um, yeah, there's no doubt about that. That's that's one of the things we we often will will kind of think. Well, you know, um, I, I need, give me some resources I can give my kids. I, I hear that all the time. Give me a resource that I can give my kids, mm-hmm. and I, I I certainly understand um, that impulse, right? Right. Um, uh, but the, the the truth of the matter is, is that we are the resource as parents that mm-hmm. our kids need, mm-hmm. and. So what we really have to do is say to ourselves, well, what are the resources that I – because let's say the first question is you always think, well, I just need a resource that my 18-year-old can read before he goes away to university or whatever. That's not how it works. The first doubts that your kids probably have are when they're in junior high. They're, they're 12. They're 13. And to be honest, you're not going to give them one of my books um, and, uh, and, and say, okay, I'm, I'm good to go. Or I'll do an eight-week. I'll plug in this eight-week DVD. I'm good to go. And I look, we all make those things, but what it comes down to is that as parents, we have to take these things seriously enough to say, I need to understand enough about this personally, so I can be the the, the first and best uh, Christian apologist that my kids uh, contact. Mm. And that's a big burden, right? Right. But but we we also want to model what it is to be uh, uh, you know if you're raising boys I'm trying to model what it is to be a man if you're raising girls you're trying to model Christian godly womanhood we're doing these things we have to model a thoughtful forensic faith and that that means you can't say well I know people who are thoughtful you want to be the person right. Right. Who is the thoughtful one that they look at and go, okay, I want to be like dad or I want to be like mom. Well, and correct me here, but Christianity was never made to be half-hearted. It seems like right. it's kind of all in or all out. And like you said, that's that's the most challenging thing to me that I have children looking to me. I mean, mine are 17 and 15 now, and I remember taking my son to the park years ago and it was one of the first times he remembers me witnessing to someone. Someone came by, we were playing soccer. It was another guy, we played some soccer. And he was just enthralled with it. Like he was talking about it when we went home. 
and I hadn't realized, you know, I wasn't doing it for him. It just kind of what I did separately. But that was one of the first times he got to see it modeled. And it challenged me like, do, wow, do I witness in front of him? Do I do that? Am I the Christian that does that, that can arm him? So, yeah, no doubt about it. I mean, we, you know, we talk about um, really where this responsibility falls. It's, it's so easy for us in a culture like we live in today in America to assign these responsibilities. So think about it. If you go back 150 years, there, you know, public schools weren't what they were today. I mean, the responsibility for teaching and passing on information was largely for parents as well as anybody else. We've assigned that to somebody else now in this generation, of course. Mm. This is also true for spiritual development, right? We've assigned that to somebody else. And, and the reality of it is, of course, is that we spend more time with our kids than anyone else. Let me put it to you another way. I didn't write this in the book this way, but I'm about, we're working with Sean McDowell on a, on a new book that talks about some of these issues as well. Mm. But I can tell you that you and I both know that when we raised our kids and they were younger, that because we felt like uh, our family was important to us as parents, we made sacrificial choices that we thought were in the best interest of our kids. Right, right. We did it all the time. If it was a matter of what restaurant, I, I didn't go to the restaurant that <laughs> I wanted to go to. I went to the restaurant that I knew would work for our family as a whole and that would have a menu that would be appropriate for my kids and, you know, cost effective, all of those things. So you, for a season, you end up eating at restaurants you don't want to eat at. My wife or my kids, right? Right. Right. And so then you do the same thing with movies, mm. uh, entertainment, vacations you pick. It turns out all of these things end up being picked sacrificially based on what's in the best interest of my kids, oh, wow. typically. Okay, so now we have, we're a family called the church, and we are in, a, we're, we're in parenting mode. I mean, we, we are. I mean, if you look around your church, unless you're in a church where there are no kids at all, you now have kids in your family again. Right. They're the kids in your church. And we have to make a decision. Are we, as a church going to raise up our kids. We have a duty, not just to our biological kids, but the kids in our spiritual family. And if that's the case, are we willing to make sacrifices the way we would in our regular family? Oh, you know, I don't know. I don't want that topic. Is, I don't, it's, I'm not interested in that topic. Well, I wasn't interested in all the animated films I had to watch when I was raising my kids either. Right. But I watched <laughs> those films with them. And we even talked about them afterwards. Maybe you think, well, that style of music doesn't appeal to me, or the way that young people do this or that doesn't appeal. But look, we made those sacrifices in our own personal families because we knew they were in the best interest of the kids. Are we willing to see our duty as the church to raise up the next generation? And if we are, I am willing to spend every minute I have in my church experience and tailor and design it and make as a priority young people. Right. Uh, the question is, and by the way, if you did that, you'd see it be a much more vibrant church anyway, okay? Absolutely. Because it turns out that young people are much more passionate and engaged and all in than some of the adults in our congregations anyway. So I think if you did that, you would see a big difference. If the one thing you could do to change your church life as a, as a group is simply tailor it for young people and everything will change. Absolutely. I, I remember seeing you at Smart Faith, and um, I'm kind of a loudmouth sometimes, so you said, you talked about youth, and I said, what's youth? And I was probably like 40 or something a couple years ago, and you, I thought you said, correct me, but I thought you said youth is teachability and passion. Yeah. It's so, what is it to be young at heart? Right. Right? Right. Well, a lot of this is teachability. This is huge, and, and it's, it's, it is passion, right? Uh, so there's uh, some things about, you know, to be like a child is really about being open 
to the spiritual things that that sometimes we close ourselves the, 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 our lives kind of uh, kind of work against us and we end up shutting doors and shutting possibilities and shutting down hopes and dreams and I can tell you working cold cases I often I've had a case several cases where the victim was high school age when she was mm. uh, killed mm. and so my suspects were also pretty close to high school age back in the day well now 30 years have gone by and I've researched all the people in her life including the deceased and now I'm going out and I'm re-interviewing all of the people who I learned about back when they were like 18, 17, 16, say in 1980, and now they're older. And what I've always been struck by is how depressing it is to do that because very few of the young people that I engage now 32 years later on a case or whatever it may be, 35 years later, um, have the passion and energy. And for many of these folks, they're hopes and dreams were dashed mm. in the last 35 years and they don't seem to have the they're just kind of surviving but if you had interviewed them 35 years ago they were all full of hope oh, and expectation yeah. and, oh. and and they had purpose and future and that everything was leaning forward and now a lot of these folks life has kind of beat that out of them well yeah absolutely i'm sorry to cut in but adults yeah. adults that i see I mean, sometimes they can avoid witnessing. They can go to work, put their head down, sit in their cubicle, do their job, and not talk politics and religion, you know, and follow society's rules. But the children, the kids you're talking about, they're going to high school, they're going to college, they have no escape. They're getting pummeled by their peers, pummeled by teachers. I mean, that that's what's so amazing about your material is that you're preparing the people that are going to face it. And sometimes with apologetics, I mean, I do witness to adults. I don't want to say I don't want to follow the Great Commission, but my heart leans more toward kids because they're in the battle more often, whereas a lot yeah. of adults have decided, you know what, I'm going to coast this out. Yeah, we, we get to pick our, our, our peer groups. Right. And, uh, you know, at my age of 55, I, I can certainly, if I choose to, surround myself with like-minded people. Sure. Um, and I often do that. We often do that as adults. But kids don't get that opportunity in, in college. Uh, you know, you can a little bit because social media helps you to, to kind of click into right. different groups and stay there. But in classes, at least, you're going to be in, in a very kind of pluralistic environment in which you're going to hear everyone's story and you're not going to be able to isolate uh, students. And the whole, my whole point here is that I don't think we've written – Forensic Faith is definitely not a book that's just for students. It's really a call to action for Christians right. to rethink the way they've held their, their view of faith so, so they can be better equipped to interact with the culture that, for the most part, sees this as incredibly unreasonable and not supported by the evidence. Right. And let's think about this for a second. If there, I just wrote an article on, on Christian um, Post but last week, and, and one of the things I said in this article was if you think about this, this, this tension right now between um, the, the right to not be discriminated against and the right to have religious liberties, right? These, mm-hmm. these, these two things are in collision right now. And so if, if you're going to see which is going to rule the day, if they're going to make a case on the other side for why, why certain groups should not be discriminated against. And they're making it evidentially and scientifically, and they're making a strong argument. On the other side, they see people who hold a religious worldview that is unreasonable and unsupportable by the evidence. That's the way they see it. Right. In other words, they think we have an objective truth that we can argue for. All you have is a subjective opinion that you can't argue for. Right. And in the That's world right. of marketplace of ideas, mm-hmm. uh, objective case, you know, we can make a objective. It's always going to win right. over the subjectively held opinion. So we cannot reinforce 
that narrative by not taking a, a really a forensic view or more evidential view, I can make a case and make the argument for what I believe is a Christian to the exact same degree that the other case can be made. And at least then we have a voice in a world that requires the case to be made that way. Absolutely. Absolutely. Jim, as we, as we wind down, how do people get in touch with you? Well, I'm uh, available at uh, coldcasechristianity.com, and that's where we post every day, and we interact on social media. You'll see all of our social media links there, so I'd love to inter- engage and interact with people. That's fantastic. Here at The God Solution, we like to invite everyone to trust Jesus as Lord and Savior. One of the easiest ways that I remember to help people do that is the ABCs to accept believe and confess. We need to confess that we're not perfect, that heaven's a perfect place, and to get there we're going to need some help. That is the cross. That is believing in the death, deity, and resurrection of Jesus of Nazareth. And when I say accept, I mean trust. I don't just mean blind faith. I mean trust. And the example that I like is the guy that rides his bike across a tightrope of Niagara Falls, and he rides one way, and the crowd applauds, and he rides back, and they applaud, and he says, how many people believe I can do it again? And they raise their hand, and he says, who wants to ride on my shoulders? And so trust involves something more than just an easy belief, and that's the trust that we encourage you to um, believe in Christ as Lord and Savior. So, uh, Jim, thank you very much for being on with us. We appreciate it. You can go to Cold Case Christianity for more of Jay Warner Wallace doing fantastic work. And everyone, please remember that an open mind, honest heart, humble disposition, and a diligent search always lead to Jesus. Jim, God bless you. Thank you very much. Thanks, brother, for having me. I appreciate you. Absolutely. You've been listening to The God Solution. We hope that you were encouraged by what you heard today and are better equipped to share Christ this week. You can get the audio from today's broadcast and all the past God Solution shows at godsolutionshow.com. Thanks for listening and being a part of The God Solution.